to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hi, Akil. Hey, Andy. Akil, you're getting more and more terse in your greetings to our audience. <laughs> I'm greeting you. <laughs> Thank you. So today we're actually doing this one over, over Zoom. Uh, you know, just our, our audience might be interested in the fact that we record most of these episodes in person. Uh, I, I schlep up to Guilford with the, with the equipment and, uh, and we record it there, but uh, it's not always possible and we want, we want you, our audience, to be able to have an episode every week. So we've been able to maintain that, including our bonus episode last week. So this one's over Zoom, but hopefully the uh, audio quality will be, be preserved. So um, we're back on to the American Constitution after our uh, digression for a special episode onto the, on the Yale Constitution. Um, and actually, we've completed now a series of episodes on the old schools that uh, loomed large in the American Constitutional Project, and that was a group of uh, eight or nine schools. Um, and now we're going to move on to another series of episodes, um, which actually features another group of nine. In this case, it's the uh, the nine justices that sit on the, the current Supreme Court. If you've listened to our past episodes, you know it wasn't always nine, but it has been nine now for some time. And by the way, these nine uh, have connections in, in many cases to that same group of schools. This is going to be part of a, a Supreme Court series that we're initiating here. And some of you may have uh, been wondering why we haven't uh, spoken more about the Supreme Court. Maybe you were expecting uh, week by week, uh, blow by blow of the court's docket and so forth. Um, but now that we're at, at uh, temporarily near the end of the Supreme Court term, this seemed like an appropriate time uh, to begin that, that episode. So we're going to start off with a uh, discussion, and this is about the modern Supreme Court. Um, so we're going to begin with a discussion of the justices themselves. And we'll move on to a discussion of the current term, including um, some tips from Professor Moore on just how to, how to follow the, the term, how to, where to look on the web, how to do it, what to look for in the decisions, and so forth. And then we're going to have a series of guests, and th this is really you know, quite exciting, because really we have the, an all-star team of, of court watchers. Um, that have agreed to come on to America's Constitution, including uh, Joan Biskupic, Nina Totenberg, Ruth Marcus, and Marsha Coyle. Um, so interesting that uh, so many of the very best court watchers um, are women these days. Um, and then, in addition, uh, Neil Katyal has agreed to come on, uh, and Jeff Rosen. So really very exciting group of, of people. So, um, Akil... What do you have to say about the group of justices that, are, that sit on the Supreme Court now? Thanks, Andy. Um, and uh, before I, I t in today's conversation, give our audience a sense of the, the individual justices one by one, basically in seniority, I'll try to describe, I think, what is particularly interesting and distinctive about um, each justice, maybe his or her sort of best idea or set of ideas and his or her um, least great um, uh, idea or set of ideas. But be, before I do that, since you did mention nine, I want to share some news uh, with our uh, audience. Um, several episodes back, we talked about um, court packing um, uh, and 
why I'm against it, why I think nine should remain nine, um, but why I am a believer in term limits for the justices, 18 years in particular, and the episode, I think we were able to count up to 18 different reasons um, why 18 years on the court might be um, a good uh, way to proceed and how that can be done by a mere statute. Not, um, no constitutional amendment, in my view, is required. So the news that I wanted to share, um, Andy, with you, um, I'm not sure I've told you this yet, um, and um, with our audiences, I just agreed um, earlier today to testify before uh, President Biden's uh, commission on the judiciary. Um, that, um, and I'm going to be testifying in particular about um, the idea of term limits um, and uh, talking about the uh, the 18-year idea. I'm going to, in my uh, testimony, obviously refer to the podcast episode. Um, that testimony, I think, will be will probably be videotaped and, and maybe um, uh, covered on C-SPAN or um, some other um, uh, um, a platform. It's going to occur, my particular testimony will be on uh, Tuesday, July 20th from 2 to 3.15 uh, p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, and uh, they're planning, I think, the commission is um, uh, five witnesses on the idea of term limits. I don't know who the others um, will be. And uh, maybe just mention one other thing about that commission um, before uh, talking about the justices, since you mentioned schools, and we're going to be talking about the educational some of the justices, uh, uh, um, just as we talked about the educational background of Joseph Story, for example, um, in a recent episode. Um, no fewer than um, four of the 35 or so members of this Judicial Commission are actually colleagues of mine at the Yale Law School. Uh, the co-chair, Christina Rodriguez, um, my dean, Heather Gherkin, my towering colleagues, uh, Jack Balkin, and Justin Driver. Um, uh, Jack and Christina, in fact, are co-editors with me of uh, the case book that uh, we have on constitutional law, uh, along with Sandy Levinson and, uh, uh, and uh, my great colleague, uh, Reva Siegel. Sandy is a professor at uh, University of Texas, but four Yale professors um, on this commission of, of 35. Above and beyond, uh, my four Yale Law School colleagues who are commissioners, um, there are just an extraordinary number of Yale graduates, many of whom in the small world department happen to be uh, my uh, former students. I'm just actually going to go down the list alphabetically. Uh, there's Kate Andreas, a Yale Law School graduate who has recently accepted a position at Columbia Law School. Um, and uh, way back when, I actually asked Kate to be a TA for me. She had, I asked her a little too late. She had already agreed to, to be a TA for one of my colleagues, but uh, I've always um, been a huge fan of Kate's. Um, and then there's um, actually uh, Will Bode, um, uh, who actually was my TA, my head TA for several years. Um, again, a Yale Law School graduate, now a very distinguished professor at uh, the University of Chicago, um, who uh, um, uh, is particularly, uh, who's just uh, 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 really making a name for himself just today. He was cited by the Supreme Court, uh, uh, by one of the justices in a uh, 
an eminent domain case, and I think that makes about 12 citations for him in his first 14 years as a law professor, which is a, a, just a, an amazingly uh, fast start, and he's being cited by the court across a, a wide range of, of, of issues. So, so he's the, the next Tiger Wood, perhaps, uh, trying to, to um, uh, uh, eclipse the, um, the citation records set by some of us old fogies, including uh, yours truly. I might be um, a, a version of Jack Nicholas to his uh, Tiger Woods. Um, so uh, an, another, um, uh, not my, one of my students, but the father of one of my students, the great Walter Dellinger, former acting solicitor general of the United States, another Yale Law School graduate, and his son, Hampton, who was my protege, um, has just been picked by President Biden, nominated to be head of the Office of Legal Policy, which historically has played a particularly important role in picking uh, a federal uh, judicial nominees, judges and, and justices. Um, Dick Fallon is a graduate of the Yale Law School, a very distinguished graduate and a very distinguished professor at the Harvard Law School. He's a little senior to me, so not my student, but a, a dear friend and mentor and role model, someone whom I um, hugely admire. Um, Nancy Gertner is a Yale Law School graduate, a former judge. She's a little bit more senior, so, um, uh, but again, just, and, and she's been a, 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 an adjunct professor at Harvard. You're seeing connections between um, these old schools that we talked about and, um, and the movers and shakers uh, these days, and we'll talk about that when we talk about the justice themselves. Again, just going down the list uh, alphabetically, Jack Goldsmith. Um, it's another one of my favorite students of all time. He's now a professor at the Harvard Law School. I, I remember way back when, when I wrote letters of recommendation on his behalf, as I did for, for Will Bode and others. Um, uh, again, just going down alphabetically, and I'm, I'm probably missing a, a few here. Um, uh, and I'm just picking the, the Yale ones in, in particular. Uh, there are others yeah, who you're have gonna connections. Be you're going to be testifying, so you don't want to miss anybody, right? <laughs> uh, well, I, well I, I'd be going, almost all of them have connections in some way, shape, or form. To so it's these, a, a heavily these, academic these uh, commission then, uh, wouldn't you say? Uh, absolutely. But let me just go down the list and at least, you know, for, for completion, mention some of the Yalees. Allison LaCroix is a professor at the University of Chicago, but a Yale Law School graduate. Um, um, uh, Maggie Lemos has been a visiting professor um, at Yale Law School. Um, uh, Caleb Nelson uh, was uh, one of my star students. Uh, I wrote his letter of recommendation way back when. Uh, he's a distinguished professor at uh, uh, the University of Virginia Law School, which, of course, we mentioned UVA in, in the past episode. And, and he, too, by the way, was... Uh, 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 cited uh, today in the Supreme Court on um, some issues of statutory interpretation. Um, uh, uh, Christina Rodriguez, I, I already um, mentioned, but I um, just want to mention she's co-chair of the commission. Um, Kim Roosevelt, Kermit Roosevelt, one of my best friends, uh, favorite students of all time, he's thanked uh, profusely in the new book, um, is a Yale Law School graduate. Before that, he went to Harvard. Um, he's now a, a professor at Penn. Uh, Bertrand Ross is a, another Yale Law School graduate. I know him less well. He's a professor uh, at, at Berkeley. Um, um, and again, I'm skipping some of the others who are merely Harvard people, uh, like uh, the great Lawrence Drive, <laughs> um, uh, and, or merely Princeton people, like uh, our dear friend Keith Whittington. 
Um, but you see, actually, it's a very um, ivified, um, not just scholarly, but very much um, Ivy League and, frankly, um, uh, Yale Law School-centered um, um, list of commissioners. Um, so and there, might be, there might be those who might object to that. You know, it's one thing at the founding, there are eight or nine schools, that's all that there are. You know, mm-hmm. here there, there are many schools um, mm-hmm. and, and fine law schools. Um, so, uh, you know, some might say, well, you know, it's too Ivy-centric. What, what do you yes. say, what do you say that, to that? They might be right. Uh, I wrote about this in my book, uh, The Constitution Today, um, and uh, actually, uh, let me read you what I said about um, this issue in that book. Uh, this was an essay that I published in Slate in the spring of 2016 when Merrick Garland was nominated for the court. And remember, at that time, uh, we don't have, the th- th- um, obviously, the, the three newest justices, um, uh, Gorsuch, um, who ends up uh, getting picked instead of Garland, and uh, then Kavanaugh and Barrett. Um, and this was an essay in which I, I talked about how Merrick Garland um, reminds me of Abe Lincoln in that he's just a hardworking, smart kid from the Midwest who rises uh, because of his um, uh, virtue and, and, and excellence. Um, so hooray for Lincoln uh, and his metaphor children. I, included Barack Obama in that and, and, and Merrick Garland. I also added Hillary Clinton, who's from also the Midwest and um, um, was a, a very scholarly um, uh, youngster. Um, so hooray for Lincoln and his metaphoric children, Barack, Hillary, and Merrick. But here's the difference between, Link, between him and them and the dark side of the rise of modern meritocracy. Lincoln did not go to a fancy college or law school. In fact, he had less than a year's formal education from cradle to grave. He rose late in life. By contrast, Obama, Clinton, and Garland are all Ivy Leaguers. So is Scalia. And so are all the current justices. Again, that was before um, Amy Coney Barrett. Garland himself is a double Harvard grad. To be sure, he was a scholarship kid, not unlike Obama, Clarence Thomas, and Sonia Sotomayor at various stages in their illustrious academic careers. But the gateway to the modern Supreme Court seems to narrow early in life. Apparently, late bloomers and non-Ivies need not apply. This narrowing is happening not just at the court, but also in the presidency. And then I talk about actually how recent presidents are increasingly coming from Harvard and Yale and and, um, uh, from um, uh, Ivy Leagues. Obama, Garland, and Clinton thus embody a brave new world in which we are all formally born equal, but inequality begins to set in quite early in life based on early grades, early test scores, and early extracurriculars. New world elites are not quite the same as old world elites, but the emerging schoolocracy makes me nervous, even as I myself have been a huge beneficiary. Admissions officers goof, and not all roses bloom early. And um, that's what I wrote in 2016. And then when I, um, I uh, revisited um, uh, the essays in the book for the paperback edition after Trump's election, I added a few more thoughts. 
as I wrote this postscript, actually in July 2018, not 2017, on, on Independence Day, July 4th, 2018, I, I penned this postscript. So as I wrote it back then, uh, of course, Garland um, was not confirmed. Um, the slot was open for Trump. He nominated Gorsuch, who um, filled it. And as I was composing uh, the postscript, Justice Kennedy had just announced his resignation from the court. Um, and, uh, and of course, that's a slot that eventually went to Kavanaugh, a law school graduate. Here's what I wrote on July 4th, 2018, um, in what became the postscript to this book, The Constitution Today. Many of the candidates on President Trump's official list of possible successors to Justice Kennedy are graduates not just of top law schools, but also of extremely selective colleges. Gorsuch, posting degrees from Columbia, Harvard, and Oxford also fit a prize. This is a continuation of a trend identified in an earlier chapter. Whether the trend is good, bad, or indifferent is up to the reader to decide. In principle, I see the argument for broader experiential and educational, for a broader experiential and educational base. But in practice, I often find myself touting both publicly and privately, particularly stellar candidates whom I happen to know because they are high-achieving Ivy Leaguers. Um, and in fact, what I also say is um, uh, that, you know, from a personal point of view, uh, as, as mentioned, I've benefited from uh, the credentials that uh, Ivy League um, uh, training and, and, and strong Ivy League performance good grades um, at Ivy League institutions. I've benefited from that system, uh, but I am worried, Andy, I, I agree with you, it just might be unduly narrow um, if everyone has to pass through just a few schools um, and, um, and be validated by a handful of professors who are the early judge pickers and I say that as one of the professors who, who is uh, guarding that narrow gate. Um, but but um, uh, I, I see the, the concern. I, I, I um, wasn't on the judicial commission that President Biden picked. I wasn't consulted about who would be on that commission. Um, when I looked at the commissioners, I said, wow, a lot of names I know here, a lot of Yaleys. Well, look, we're going to have a discussion over the next several episodes, and particularly today, about the justices themselves and what they're doing and so forth. And, you know, we can have a, a, a feeling about what should be the criteria uh, to use when you're choosing a justice. Where did they go to school is one of the things that we might think about. But, you know, now we're going to be discussing them and, in some sense, the evaluating them, and the listeners will be evaluating them. So really, one way to look at it is let's look backwards when we're done, you know, and say, okay, now we've talked about the justices. We, you know, who, we have our opinions about who's an excellent justice and who, who less so. And how does this correspond to their education? What is that? In, and historically, well, how about that? Like when we look at, back at so some the, of the great justices in history, Hugo Black, for example, you know, uh, you know who, who was an Ivy League graduate, who wasn't? You know, what difference did it actually make 
in the end. So we're, we could approach this more scientifically than speculatively. You took the words right out of my mouth um, uh, with a hat tip to, to Meatloaf, um, who's actually um, a, a, a official legal name, just by the way, is Meatloaf. Um, <laughs> his, first, his first name is Meat. Um, so um, uh, now um, I mentioned already Lincoln. He's our hero. Um, I'm uh, uh, in my uh, a study um, and I'm looking right now at uh, a, a, a mask of, of, of Lincoln that, uh, that you gave me. You and I are, um, in a phrase, Lincoln men. And he had practically no formal education whatsoever. A year of education all in, you know, kindergarten through everything in his entire life. So never went to college, never went to law school, um, never really spent much time in organized schools of any sort. Um, Again, less than a year all in. Um, And we adore him and think he's just incomparable, you and I. Um, uh, We mentioned that Washington, who we've talked about quite a lot, was largely um, tutored at home, didn't, um, got a surveyor's degree from William and Mary, but not much more than that. Um, on the court, absolutely right. Um, my pick for the best justice of the 20th century is Hugo Black, Hugo Lafayette Black, um, who um, was a hick from the sticks, didn't go to an Ivy League institution, didn't even have three years of formal law school training basically, um, and is from University of Alabama, and was underestimated by all the Ivy Leaguers precisely because of that, by the likes of Felix Frankfurter, who was a Harvard Law School graduate and a Harvard Law School professor, and in my view, not remotely um, uh, on the same level as Hugo Black in terms of his uh, enduring uh, achievements and, and legacy on the Supreme Court. Another book that um, I wrote a few years ago uh, called The Law of the Land uh, opens with a chapter about Lincoln, and the next chapter is all about Hugo Black. Um, and uh, uh, um, there's a book just out now. Uh, I was just uh, reading some reviews um, of it earlier today, all about uh, John Marshall Harlan, the elder, um, who um, went to Transylvania University. Again, um, it was not an Ivy Leaguer, um, and uh, the book, I think, is called The, um, or, uh, the Great Dissenter, um, and John Marshall Harlan is a towering figure, in, in my opinion. I'm a big fan of his grandson, also John Marshall Harlan, uh, conventionally referred to as John Marshall Harlan the Younger, who was a Princeton grad and indeed um, a, a president of um, uh, the Ivy Club, I believe. And in the small world department, so was our friend Philip Bobbitt, uh, president of the Ivy Club at a later stage of his Princeton career. And, and maybe I should say Sir Philip, because um, uh, recently Philip was uh, given an honorary knighthood by Queen Elizabeth, uh, which has been given to very, very few Americans uh, since uh, World War II, just a handful. Um, so, um, but and as much as I like John Marshall Harlan the Younger, a very thoughtful, distinguished justice on the Supreme Court, an Eisenhower appointee, um, I, if, if, I, if you put a gun to my head and asked me, I think I might pick his grandfather as even more towering, just because his grandfather, uh, John Marshall Harlan the Elder, stood alone um, in dissent in uh, really important cases, the civil rights cases of 1883, Plessy versus Ferguson, um, and was a towering dissenter in other cases where his dissents have really proved prophetic. Um, Lochner 
versus New York, a case involve, uh, another case involving um, the federal income tax, a case called um, Pollock versus um, uh, New York. So, so yes, looking back, it is not the case that all the Ivy League um, graduates have been great. Um, I think Frankfurter is vastly overrated, for example, and not all the non-Ivy Leagues have been, uh, Leaguers have been duds. My hero of all um, is John uh, is um, Hugo Black, and and that would and, and we could say that for presidents too. We've had very well credentialed educationally presidents. John Adams had strong educational credentials. Our audience has heard that I thought he was basically a bad president. And so did the American people. That's why they voted against him. Um, and, and he had very strong educational credentials. Um, and George Washington had less strong educational credentials. And our audience has heard, you know, that, that I'm a Washington man, deep down. So absolutely right. Um, 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 we, you and I, are evidence-based. Let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the data and see if there are any patterns or uh, hypotheses that, um, that, um, uh, that we might um, put forth. Okay, so let's uh, let's get going with it. Let's look at today's court and the justices on the court. We're going to talk about all nine justices, um, but just as we didn't talk about all the schools in the Ivy League in one episode, I think we just, we'll see how far we get today. But but we may end up uh, breaking down the Supreme Court um, into um, uh, two episodes, uh, possibly three, um, and. Uh, uh, we'll try to do it by seniority, so um, at least today I, we're going to talk about the most senior justice ex officio, the chief justice, and the two most senior associate justices, and, and maybe we'll get farther. Let's just see how we go, how far we get. Yeah, and I think when we talk particularly about the chief, you know, since we'll talk about the chief first, you know, he's kind of, we'll, we'll use him as an exemplar of how to think about these justices. So we'll, we'll go into more detail about the chief um, but uh, nevertheless, if we don't get to everyone this time, we'll, uh, this, is a, this is an interesting topic. Everybody likes to talk about the individual justices and, and so forth. So I think our audience will forgive us if we, uh, if we run into the next episode. So let's start um, in, based on seniority um, with the chief. Even though he hasn't been there the longest, by tradition, the chief justice is ex officio, the most senior person on the court. And we'll just do it in order of seniority. Let's start with the chief. And oh, isn't it interesting? Um, now, he's from the Midwest, um, uh, Indiana, basically. He's born in um, uh, um, western uh, New York, but family quickly moves to the Midwest. Um, he's a superstar. He's um, uh, a star, um, uh, an academic superstar, but he's also captain of the, um, his high school football team, which in the Midwest is a big deal. He's, he's good-looking, he's charming, um, he's well-spoken. And where does he end up, this Midwestern um, academic superstar um, uh, 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 quarterback? Um, he ends up at Harvard College and then at Harvard Law School, where he's on the Harvard Law Review. He's the managing editor of the Harvard Law Review. In a different year, a fellow named Obama will be the president of the Harvard Law Review, the first black president of the Harvard Law Review. Um, uh, but, but John Roberts, Harvard, Harvard, top grades at Harvard College, obviously, because you, you don't get top grades in high school because you don't get to Harvard College without top grades, top grades at Harvard College because you don't get to Harvard Law School without top grades, top grades at Harvard Law School because you don't get on the Harvard Law Review and become managing editor back in that era without all of that. And, and then what does he do, of course? 
he clerks. Because if you want to be a justice today, um, it turns out it's really important to, to clerk early on. Almost all of them today were law clerks. Now, that not, wasn't completely clear. Perhaps when John Roberts was a young man, some of these patterns are only evident in, in retrospect. But John Roberts not only clerked um, after law school, which, what's a clerk? It's a kind of a, an apprentice um, judicial position. It's um, sitting at the, at the elbow of a judge or a justice and helping that judge or justice craft research and craft opinions. Um, I was a law clerk way back when for then judge, now Justice Stephen Breyer, who was a law clerk for Justice Arthur Goldberg, but we'll get to Breyer soon enough. Um, um, but, but because even though Breyer is older than Roberts, Roberts, because he's chief, you know, is senior in um, uh, um, as a um, as a formal legal matter. And I'm starting with Roberts. So Harvard College, Harvard Law School, does not one but two judicial clerkships: one for a court of appeals judge one for a Supreme Court justice. Now, who does he clerk for on the Court of Appeals? Now, and why am I mentioning all this? Because this shapes who he is and how he thinks. These are his early formative experiences in the law. He goes to a real law school. I, I'm a big fan of the Harvard Law School. We joke sometimes about Harvard, but you know that I'm always saying nice things about the Harvard Law School. And, and one of the nicest things that I say about the Harvard Law School is um, it trained your son, Matthew. Um, who is as great a young lawyer as I have met. And he's a magna cum laude graduate of the Harvard Law School. And he went to a good college, too, by the way. Um, uh -huh. And our audience will know, and he's laughing, that that, of course, means Yale College. Um, um, and, um, and indeed, Andy, I told you this offline, but you know, uh, you know, this, we're just conversing here. The reason I wanted to go um, at the age of 17 to Yale College, above all, the reason it was my top choice is I decided at age 17, you should go to a different place for uh, law school and you go to college. And obviously Harvard was the best place to go to law school, um, I thought, at age 17. So, oh, I want to go to Yale for college so I can go to Harvard for law school and those are different places. And, and that, that really was my, <laughs> my thinking, such as it was at age 17 as a public high school kid in California who didn't know a lot about a lot of things. Um, well, you um, know, I, I, uh, I'm involved with the admissions process at Yale as a, in, in the alumni role. And uh, one thing that I've, that I've said for a long time is that uh, 17 and 18-year-olds make college choices on a variety of strange bases. <laughs> you know, like, oh, I, I went there because the the uh, the tour guide was nice to me, you know, and right, of course they're paid right. to be it, nice it, to it, you. It's like when <laughs> the Peter Lorre character Ugarte... Um, no, it, 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 it's like um, when um, Humph Humphrey Bogart's character, Rick Blaine in Casablanca, is asked why he ended up uh, uh, where he was, and he said, I came for the waters. Um, and uh, waters? What waters? We're in the desert. Bogart deadpans. I was misinformed. <laughs> so so um, I came for all sorts of reasons, in fact, that turned out to be, yes, a little strange. Okay, but we digress. John Roberts, Harvard College, Harvard Law School, and then he immediately does a clerkship, and he does a clerkship with the greatest judge in America, in my view, in the 20th century. Not the greatest justice. I said that that was Hugo Black, in my view. The greatest judge in America in the 20th century was a man named Henry Friendly, uh, who grew up in upstate New York, um, interestingly enough, 
Harvard College, Harvard Law School, the best grades in the history of the Harvard Law School, had a spectacular private practice, um, uh, and um, uh, ends up founding his own law firm called Cleary, which today is called Cleary Gottlieb, a, a great uh, law firm in the city of New York, was general counsel of um, Pan American Airlines, which was a, a huge company uh, back in the middle of the 20th century. Um, so a great um, uh, 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 lawyer um, who then became a great judge, the chief judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. So that's um, the great Henry Friendly, um, put on the court by President Eisenhower. Um, uh, and in my view, Henry Friendly was the greatest judge of the 20th century. He, he um, was a scholar as well as a judge. He wrote important legal articles on a wide range of topics, one of which, interestingly, was on the Dartmouth College case, which we talked about uh, last time. And his, his law clerk back then, um, helping him with that um, uh, uh, article, um, was then my colleague, um, Bruce Ackerman, Harvard College, Yale Law School, um, uh, who was a friendly clerk. Other friendly clerks, just so you know, other than John Roberts, include, since I mentioned Sir Philip, uh, but uh, our friend Philip Bobbitt, um, other um, towering academics, the former dean of the Stanford Law School, Larry Kramer, the late uh, David Curry, um, um, many, many prominent legal, um, I mentioned Bruce Ackerman, uh, many prominent legal academics, um, also um, prominent judges, um, not just John Roberts, but uh, uh, Ray Randolph on the D.C. Circuit, Pierre Laval on the uh, Second Circuit, um, 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 Merrick Garland, I should <laughs> mention, is a, is a Henry Friendly clerk. Um, so, um, uh, Michael Boudin on the First Circuit, uh, former president of the Harvard Law Review. Um, so, um, uh, Friendly is a judge's judge and a lawyer's lawyer and a scholar's scholar. And that's who John Roberts begins to learn his law from in his first judicial apprenticeship. I think one of the themes of, of our episodes here was that you'll see uh, going forward is that we're we're discussing the background here of, of the of the judge the justice and of the chief justice and talking about who he clerked for and we want to see how that influences him um, as he sits on the court and as as we watch the court and look to see you know what's likely to happen and what do we read in this decision by this justice and what does it mean um, this is one of the things we're going to be looking at now you just described. Uh, a, a list of of judges and justices of very different uh, ideologies um, that clerked for the same judge. Um, would you say then, not necessarily in this case, but perhaps keep this in mind going forward, that there is, notwithstanding these different ideologies uh, of the judges, something that they have in common by virtue of having clerked for Henry Friendly? Yes, I'm going to come back to that when I talk about John Roberts' greatest moment on the court, which was when he uh, joined uh, four Democratic appointees as the only Republican appointee to hold, uphold in the main Obamacare. And I think he did so um, in a way that um, 
made complete sense to me given his background and training, given actually that he's a friendly clerk, and I need to tell you who friendly clerked for, because I haven't yet, whose name is Louis Brandeis, um, who is a great judge and had certain themes, um, and um, was also a Harvard Law School graduate, who was generally um, thought to have maybe the highest grades at the Harvard Law School until his record was broken by Henry Friendly. Now, what does that mean to John Roberts? John Roberts is aware of who Henry Friendly is and thinks of himself as a friendly clerk and therefore also thinks of himself as a Brandeis grand clerk, so to speak. Sees his pedigree, his lineage, and I, as a court watcher, was aware of all of that. So if I'm trying to persuade John Roberts of a certain thing, um, namely that Obamacare is constitutional, I'm going to actually try to understand how the world looks to John Roberts, and, oh, if I have a Brandeis card, I'm going to play it. Um, if I have a Henry Friendly card, I'm going to play it, because they count for... Um, Roberts. Um, and Roberts has studied them and believes that they were great legal minds and he wants to be a great, um, they were great judges and jurists and he wants to be in that tradition. So, yes, th- your audience might think, why is this guy bloviating, gossiping about, you know, you know where, they, where they summered or, you know, where, where they prepped? And I, I'm not a prep school kid myself, okay? I'm trying to understand their biography, where they're coming from in order to understand how they were trained, how their mind works, who their heroes are, um, um, who their heroes are not. Now, I'm a huge admirer of Henry Friendly, so that gives me a lot in common with uh, the Chief Justice, even though I don't believe I've ever met the Chief Justice. I sent him recommendations year after year. Um, I remember actually writing the letter on behalf of Will Bode, who was my head TA, and Robert picked Will Bode as his law clerk. And Will Bode is cited again and again by the Supreme Court, in part because Roberts likes Will Bode. I mentioned earlier that Will Bode was just cited today in an important eminent domain case. I've never met John Roberts. Um, I've, I've seen him but um, uh, 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 from, from afar, but I never got a chance to, to shake his hand. But year after year, I send him recommendations for law clerks, and he takes those, I think, seriously, in part because we have people in common. Um, we both are admirers of Will Bode. We both are admirers of Henry Friendly and what he stood for. Now, Chief Justice Roberts, um, when he was then just John Roberts, after his clerkship for Friendly, clerked on the Supreme Court for William Rehnquist. Now, truth be told, I'm not as much of an admirer of William Rehnquist. William Rehnquist um, um, has um, revived the... Um, and and uh, the civil rights cases of 1883, which in my view are every bit as bad as Plessy versus Ferguson. And, um, and William Rehnquist, in my view, um, was a more ideological jurist and, and a less admirable one than Henry Friendly. Henry Friendly was a, a, a person of, of law and a preeminent scholar, so I'm not, honestly, as big a fan of, of Rehnquist. And, of course, that fits. I have a worldview. What did I say? I say, oh, I'm a huge admirer of John Marshall Harlan, the elder, who didn't go to a fancy school. Harlan was the great dissenter, the sole dissenter in the civil rights cases of 1883, but if he was right, those cases were wrong. And he was the sole dissenter in Plessy, and if he was right, those cases were wrong. And I think Plessy was wrong, and the court today admits that. Um, um, When William Rehnquist clerked on the Supreme Court, because he was a law clerk too, it was the year Brown versus Board of Education, and he wrote a memo 
saying, I think Plessy was rightly decided and should be fought, okay? He later, in his confirmation hearing, said, oh, that wasn't me, I was summarizing the views of my justice. I don't buy it. That was William Rehnquist. That's who he is. It's so consistent with everything that William Rehnquist actually said before, said after, and maybe he misremembered. I'm not, I'm not accusing him of, of lying. People misremember things many years after the fact. Um, uh, and the confirmation hearings were decades after um, Rehnquist's clerkship in uh, Brown versus Board of Education. I'm going to come back to all of this, but um, because Roberts's greatest moment on the court was reminiscent of Friendly, and his worst moment on the court was reminiscent of Rehnquist. And oh, isn't that interesting? What I'm you know going to tell you about Roberts, but just to go back to Rehnquist for a minute. Again, Roberts clerks for him on the Supreme Court, and Rehnquist. Um, really has helped to revive the civil rights case of 1883, even though, basically, if you think Plessy's wrong deep down, you should think the civil rights cases of 1883 are wrong. Both are, both majority opinions are um, uh, dismissive of the rights of, of, of the newly freed slaves. Um, and, um, and the civil rights cases is, is, in addition, contemptuous of the power of Congress to um, protect civil rights. Um, and that's why they're a really bad decision, and the court today is building on them, and, um, uh, and, and, and that's deeply unfortunate. Now, since again you said, well, let's, let's talk about the track record. Um, since we mentioned Plessy, and, and if we like Harlan in dissent, and I do, oh, what are we going to say about the person who wrote the majority opinion? Uh, believe it or not, his name was Justice Brown, <laughs> as in Brown versus Board of Education. And here's what i got to tell you. Andy, it pains me to say this, but he's a Yale graduate, okay? So in Plessy, the Ivy League guy really let us down. The hick from the sticks, you know, is the great hero in the tradition of, of, of Lincoln before me. Um, Harlan's from Kentucky. Um, he went to a place called Transylvania University, um, as did Henry Clay and, and many other uh, uh, prominent people at that time. So he's not an Ivy League type. He's, he's from middle America, heartland. So he's my hero in... Um, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, he's my hero. Harlan is the first Harlan in uh, the civil rights cases of 1883. I don't like the justices who are building on the civil rights cases of 1883. That includes William Rehnquist, who did graduate work at the Harvard Law School, in fact, studying Reconstruction, in fact. So I think Rehnquist knew what he was doing. And so from this point of view, Roberts, whom I've never met and whom I very much admire, um, but still, I have to admit, he's the product, in a way, of a mixed marriage, in that he clerked for one of the persons who's my absolute hero, Henry Friendly, I'm on the Second Circuit, and another person who is less of my hero, truth be told, um, uh, William Rehnquist. Now, you might think what I've just been describing is just a lot of kind of gossipy stuff about Roberts's background and biography, um, but... Uh, the intellectual and personal influences on him that I've begun to describe actually are genuinely relevant for thinking about um, his body of work, and in particular, uh, what I consider his very best opinion and uh, what I consider one of his worst opinions. So um, the opinion that I especially admire, it's not a perfect opinion, but as we're going to see, it's, it's a, a good and important opinion, was his opinion in the Sibelius case in 
2012, in which he upheld Obamacare. He was not just a Republican appointee who joined Democrat appointees in upholding the, uh, 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 this landmark piece of legislation, um, but he was the only Republican appointee who did so, um, who crossed party lines, and in that is helping us see that law is different than partisan politics, that judges aren't junior varsity politicians. Whose idea is that most of all, oh, that's very much a Henry Friendly thought, that, that there is this thing called law and it's not the same as politics. And, and I think he, he imbibed that very much from Friendly and embodied that in the Sibelius case, which I'll come back to and talk about in a little bit greater detail because the particular move in Sibelius um, the way in which he upheld Obamacare, and again, it wasn't a perfect opinion, I have s some important criticisms of it, was also interesting because it was a word, in one technical legal word, Brandeisian. He was channeling not the person for whom he clerked, Henry Friendly, but the person for whom Friendly in turn clerked, Louis Brandeis, in the particular legal theory that he used in Sibelius. I'm going to show you actually how this thing, all of what I've been saying, which might seem gossipy, actually helps us understand um, the Sibelius case. And of course, more recently, Roberts has continued to, to reaffirm Obamacare um, in a case called King versus Burwell, where the vote was six to three. And most recently, this um, the last uh, couple of weeks, um, uh, in the third, case in the Obamacare trilogy, California versus Texas, where Roberts joins an opinion by Stephen Breyer, for whom I clerked, um, upholding Obamacare yet again, this time by a vote of seven to two, and again, crossing party lines to do so, joining a group of justices appointed by, who are Democrats appointed by Democrats and confirmed by Democratic Senates. Okay, so that's Roberts's maybe greatest opinion. Um, he'll be really be remembered for his act of, of statesmanship and nonpartisanship in Sibelius. And thank you, Henry Friendly. Thank you, Louis Brandeis. I'll say more about that in just a minute. Um, on the other side, I think his least good opinion is an opinion called Shelby County versus Holder, in which he invalidated major portions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, and in doing so, um, I think diminished the proper constitutional authority of Congress to pass civil rights and voting rights legislation. And the person who would have liked that, frankly, is, is William Rehnquist, who did the same thing, who embodied that in um, his lifetime body of work, um, building on the civil rights cases of 1883, which Rehnquist revived. Um, and in my view, that was like reviving Plessy versus Ferguson, but that's what Rehnquist did. And Roberts, who clerked for Rehnquist um, in the Shelby County case, um, did much of the same. I consider Shelby County maybe the, the worst decision of the last decade. Um, it's a 2015 decision, and I'll say a little bit more about that, but oh, isn't it interesting that Roberts at his best is like Henry Friendly and Louis Brandeis, and Roberts at his worst was like William Rehnquist. Um, okay. So I think you're getting at a theme that you have written about, which is, uh, and that others have written about on the other side, which is the, this notion that the, the court is a purely partisan institution, some believe. Um, and uh, 
you know, I, th I think that there are times when cases come out that are uh, offensive to one or, or another individual where it can certainly feel that way. And the court can line up on ideological lines at times. But frequently, that's not the case. I think we're seeing a lot of that. And actually, perhaps you might say something about the extent to which that's important to John Roberts, because um, in addition to uh, you know, his legal philosophies, he's also, I think, an institutionalist. Uh, in a sense, the institution of the court matters to him as well. And he cares how the court is perceived, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Um, he's very influenced by John Marshall, uh, the great chief justice. Um, and I think he studied the ways in which in Marbury versus Madison, John Marshall avoided just a, a head-on confrontation with the president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and and uh, uh, and he does the same thing in, in, in Obamacare. He's not just a justice, he's the chief justice, and he has to think about institutions. Let me, by the way, correct myself. I think I said Shelby County was um, uh, 2015. I think it's actually 2013, so um, uh, mea culpa. Okay, let me tell you just a little bit more about Roberts at his best um, in this um, 2012 case, when Obama is actually running for re-election, interestingly enough. Um, and uh, Roberts at his, I would say, least impressive in Shelby County. Now, the question in the Obamacare case was, among other things, does Congress have the power to enact this big sweeping law? Um, and I would say, of course, that's actually easy and obvious. It has this power. It has this power in part because... Um, Obamacare is a civil rights law of sorts. It, it affirms the, the, the right of people to um, have access to basic health care regardless of their pre-existing conditions, some of which might be birth-based. They're, they're born with certain genetic predispositions, um, uh, um, sickle cell anemia, Tay-Sachs disease, um, uh, um, just predispositions, uh, BRAC uh, predispositions to, uh, to this cancer or or. Um, sickle cell anemia or what, what have you. Yeah, so, I'd have to but, distinguish there between predispositions and actual congenital diseases. So absolutely so, you know, okay. I'm, I'm getting in trouble here because now yeah. I'm talking to a doctor. Well, you don't have a, <laughs> a you don't have a predilection for Tay Sachs. You have Tay Sachs. Okay, okay there you Whereas go. Whereas you might have a, you know a predilection for a particular cancer or something like okay. that. And that um, and that's important because uh, from an insurance point of view, right? So you oh so, absolutely. Um, um, to, to deny coverage on someone because they might get something later is even you know more egregious in some sense than to deny it because they you already know that they have it. Okay, so I um, when I was defending Obamacare long before it reached the Supreme Court, said I think it's a civil rights law and Congress is entitled to think that, but I knew the cases wouldn't support me because the cases um, are written in part by people like Rehnquist who have diminished con Congress's power um, to affirm civil rights, uh, uh, especially civil rights against non-governmental entities like insurance companies um, or hotels or restaurants, um, places of public amusement, Disneyland and the like. Where did the Supreme Court restrict Congress's power to affirm civil rights laws um, um, in in the non-governmental sector, where did the court cut back on that congressional power? The civil rights cases of 1883, um, which Rehnquist likes, the great Justice Harlan dissented. But So I knew 
when defending Obamacare as a civil rights law, I was cutting against some of the precedents. But um, so, by the way, then what was the basis of federal civil rights laws in the 1960s on race? The basis was the Interstate Commerce Clause. Congress said, fine, if we can't actually um, affirm this under our reconstruction powers, surely um, it's relevant to interstate commerce um, whether um, black people can be served in uh, a McDonald's or um, uh, a denied uh, a, a room at a Holiday Inn uh, or Howard Johnson's. Your ability to take a, a road trip, for example, to see your family in the Deep South is going to be affected by whether you can um, eat at restaurants and, and, and relieve yourself in restrooms um, and, uh, and sleep in hotels um, on your way to and from uh, your um, your 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 relatives um, and 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 that's the regulation of interstate commerce as people are moving back and forth on on freeways um, that have Howard Johnsons and Holiday Inns and and McDonald's and Burger Kings and and gas stations with um, uh, restrooms. Okay, so that's Congress's power. Um, uh, in the 1960s to pass these civil rights laws because they couldn't quite rely on their reconstruction power because of the 1883 civil rights cases. And I say, well, that's another basi basis for uh, Obamacare. Obamacare is actually about the ability of, of people to move across state lines. People are nervous about, moving, uh, about traveling across state lines if they're going to be out of their, the network of their health care coverage, unless they can actually count on um, uh, getting good coverage in emergency rooms in, in, in other states and, and all the rest. And Obamacare is connected to all of that. Oh, oh and viruses cross state lines. Um, and, and, and that's connected to Obamacare because our best defense against viruses is going to be um, vaccines and herd immunity. And our audience has heard me talk about that before. And I said all of that before Obamacare. Um, and Roberts didn't buy that argument either. But it was one of my many arguments for Obamacare. But it's not the one that I emphasized before the case reached the Supreme Court. The one that I emphasized most of all was, okay, Forget the civil rights power, although I think Obamacare is easily defensible as a civil rights law. Forget the power to regulate interstate commerce, although I think Obamacare is easily defensible as a regulation of interstate commerce and relatedly a national security measure because um, the next threat might be biological, I argued way back when, might be germ warfare. And we're still debating Wuhan today. Okay, and I said all that years before the Obamacare case even reached the Supreme Court. But here's what I emphasized most of all. I said, oh, you could see Obamacare as a tax law, as a revenue measure. And it's true, you don't have to read the, uh, the statute that way, but it's easy, it's easy enough to read it that way. And you should read it that way, because if read that way, Obamacare could easily be upheld under the tax power. And there's a duty of judges, if possible, to read statutes in a way that would make them constitutionally acceptable. That was the argument that I made most of all, and I made it most of all because I was trying to aim, I was aiming for one person, John Roberts, and I was emphasizing one theory, the tax theory, with a wrinkle, the tax theory, and, um, and construing the, the statute in a way that makes it most constitutional. So 
Um, why did I do that? Why did I say, oh, it's John Roberts on a tax theory um, with this um, uh, little um, wrinkle about um, construing statutes to make them constitutionally acceptable. Colonel Mustard in the conservatory, you know, with a gun or something. Because I can count. And four justices appointed by the Democrats were never going to have a problem with Obamacare. I think it's easy and obvious. So I only needed one-fifth vote. There are five possibilities. Roberts is actually my best possibility because he's the, he's the least ideological, I, th I thought, in, in, in some ways. Um, and, um, and the most institutional because he's the chief justice. So he's my best shot at a fifth vote to cross the line. Um, and on what theory? Sir General's office to uphold a federal authority and uh, the tax power is a really important font of federal authority. And anyone who worked in the Solicitor General's office would understand that. And that's his biography. That's not the biography, for example, of uh, Anthony Kennedy, who was on the court then, or of Clarence Thomas. They didn't work in the Solicitor General's office. And what about this special wrinkle? constitutional construction, construe a statute to save it, to make it valid. Ah, that's actually Louis Brandeis's idea in a famous opinion that he wrote called Ashwander. And of course, that would be meaningful to John Roberts because John Roberts thinks about Brandeis because he thinks about Friendly because he clerked for Friendly and Friendly clerked for Brandeis. Now, what I'm telling you is I thought all of this long before Sibelius. And our readers can confirm this because they can read uh, essays that I wrote, uh, um, which later uh, got put into the book, The Constitution Today, in which I'm making just this argument about Brandeis and the tax power. And it's obviously aimed at Roberts. And that's because I think I have a sense of how he thinks, even though I've never met him before, because I'm interested in his biography. I'm interested in his influences and how he thinks about the world, that he doesn't want to be hyper-partisan. That's what Henry Friendly told him, that he needs to be an institutionalist because he's sitting in John Marshall's chair and has studied Marbury versus Madison. And he's very much a Brandeisian, which you see in an earlier opinion that he wrote about the Voting Rights Act called Namudno. Yeah, um, I'm going to come back to the Voting Rights Act um, when I talk about um, Shelby County. But I'm saying, if you really want to actually persuade someone, you have to see them, you have to hear them, you have to know who they are, where they're coming from, what their influences are, what they would count as a good argument, what they would count as a bad argument, who their heroes are, who, whom they see as, as villains. And so, so I'm saying his best is very much in keeping with Henry Friendly's nonpartisanship and Louis Brandeis's um, desire to, wherever possible, um, uh, construe statutes in ways that make them constitutional. And of course, we're talking here about the, uh, when you say the tax, um, we're talking about the, the mandate, correct? Right, the so-called individual mandate, but it's not quite a mandate because if you don't comply with it, the way the law enforces that mandate is basically through tax consequences. Um, and at the first day of oral argument, I think John Roberts, in fact, said three words or something, or else what, you know, if you don't do them. And, and there were two people that day who heard what Roberts said and said, aha, he's maybe open to this tax argument. Walter Dellinger was one of them, um, former solicitor, acting solicitor general of the United States, who's actually on the Judicial Commission. We mentioned him earlier today. Um, and, um, and yours truly. 
Um, so that's Roberts at his best. Good for him. Now, I don't love all the rest of the opinion because it's obviously an inter regulation of interstate commerce, and Roberts didn't see that, and I thought that, that was unfortunate. Now, none of the other conservatives did either, but, but um, of course, uh, people crossing state lines back and forth um, are um, engaged in um, interstate kind of conduct that Congress can regulate. Viruses are crossing interstate lines. Um, uh, I insurance is um, uh, insuring things that are happening, not just uh, when you're at home, but, but when you're not at home. Millions of people at any minute, or at least pre-COVID, millions of people, millions at any moment in America are out of state. Um, um, let's take New York City. I, I spend typically one or two days a, a week in New York City, at least one semester out of the year. And, and, and I'm not a New York um, citizen. And if I fall sick, I'm going to go to a local ER and they're going to take care of me. And that's going to, unless I have health insurance, that's going to fall on the good people of New York. And that's not fair because I'm a Connecticut person. So um, of course, this was easily and obviously um, part of a system of, of, of interstate um, interactions. I don't believe it actually has to be economic narrowly. I think it has to be truly interstate. There has to be a spillover. Viruses, you know, um, are crossing state lines. People are crossing state lines, whether they spend money or not. But it is economic insurance. is a purely economic issue about who, who pays. So this was easy and obvious, and he didn't quite see that, truthfully, and that made it not great. Um, they, uh, there was another part of this complicated statute about the role that, of states in the system, and he, he, he unraveled part of that, which is having, which even today has unfortunate consequences for the system as a whole. I think there are going to be some states where there may be outbreaks of, uh, more severe outbreaks of, of COVID, um, uh, given the Delta variant, in part because actually the, the, the state regulation part of Obamacare got partially unraveled. So it wasn't a perfect opinion, but let's compare him to uh, Roberts, the other Republican appointees um, who basically wanted to undo the whole thing. Um, and he didn't. And he saved it. Good for him. Now, on the other side, he did write an opinion for the court in Shelby County versus Holder, 2013, not as I think I may have said before, 2015, in which he undid major portions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, and that's unfortunate because um, Congress, uh, after the Civil War, was vested with sweeping power to enforce civil rights and voting rights, especially of African Americans and their progeny. Um, and he read Congress's power um, too narrowly. In so doing, he stood on the shoulders of William Rehnquist, who read um, the, the powers of Congress to enforce Reconstruction too narrowly. And Rehnquist, in turn, was standing on the shoulders of the civil rights cases of 1883, which were wrongly decided, and the great dissenter in that case, standing alone, John Marshall Harlan, who didn't go to a fancy law school, was every bit, John Marshall Harlan was every bit as right in the civil rights case of 1883 as he was in the later uh, case of, of Plessy versus Ferguson. So in his worst decision of all, you see, Roberts is tracking Rehnquist, uh, who in turn um, was repudiating um, John Marshall Harlan, the elder. So 
Um, given what you know about uh, about John Roberts's jurisprudence and influences, if you were trying to uh, persuade him in Shelby County that he should decide on a different basis, what might you appeal to, given his influences? Um, well, the court, we, as we record this, the court has yet to hand down the last two decisions of the term, and one of them is a major... A Voting Rights Act decision. Roberts is not so much of an originalist. Um, he is a precedent person um, and an institutionalist. Um, so um, my best arguments, truthfully, um, are originalist arguments, and they may be less um, forceful to him than they might be to, let's say, um, uh, Justice Thomas, who sees himself as more of an originalist. So there is part of me that would just say, you know, what part of Justice Ginsburg dissent did you not quite understand as an originalist matter? Here's what she says, and I apologize, but I'm, I'm really very proud of um, this passage in Ginsburg's dissent, and I think her dissent in the case was one of her three or four best opinions ever, along with her opinion for the court in a case involving sex discrimination at the Virginia Military Institute, um, and along with a statutory case um, that she authored about uh, Lily Ledbetter, um, who was discriminated against um, in employment. Our audience will remember this uh, passage, because I think I quoted it before, but here's what Ruth Bader Ginsburg says in her dissent. Notably, the Founders' first successful amendment, that's the First Amendment, told Congress it could make no law over a certain domain. In contrast, the Civil War amendments used language that authorized transformative new federal statutes to uproot all vestiges of unfreedom and inequality and provided sweeping enforcement powers to enact appropriate legislation targeting state abuses. And of course, our audience will, will remember that that's from a 2005 book that I wrote. So that's, you know, the originalist in me, because I think ultimately the Constitution, the supreme law of the land, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, and it doesn't matter what any precedent says, um, uh, civil rights case of 1883 or not, the Constitution um, is the supreme law of the land, and it was designed to give sweeping power to Congress, and that's the history behind it, and that's the text. So that's what I'd want to say, um, and um, because uh, I'm an originalist of sorts, um, but that didn't move him in Shelby County, so why would it move him today? Now, another thing that Ruth Bader, he said, well, why are you picking on some states? You know, some states actually have to um, uh, submit their voting, um, uh, their changes to Congress, and other states don't. And she says, and, and, that, and this um, list of the states that, that have to get preclearance, it's outdated. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg writes a brilliant thing she, in dissent. She says, it's not outdated at all. First, Congress keeps reauthorizing the statute. The statute actually has a sunset provision, and they keep passing it. So politically, it's not some outdated law. It, it, it's been um, revised and updated. But more than that, the law itself brilliantly, brilliantly self-updates, because here's how it works. You are on the preclearance list. Um, um, only if you have a bad track record, you being a state, only if you have a bad track record um, of um, um, passing and enacting laws that uh, violate, um, uh, that are adjudicated by courts to have violated um, voting rights. 
So in effect, you're only put in detention if you have a bad track record. Okay, but, but Robert says, yeah, but what if that was a long time ago? Here's what Greensburg says. No, you can get out of detention if you've kept your nose clean for several years. You can bail out if you can show that in recent years your state has, has, has a good um, record of um, uh, abiding by voting rights. Contrarywise, there's a bail-in provision if other states that were you know, well-behaved a long time ago have, have been more recently uh, violative of voting rights. A court that finds that they violated voting rights in a recent um, situation can actually bail them in and put them onto the preclearance list. So in fact, Ginsburg says, this law is brilliant. It updates itself through bail out and bail in. It keeps the list tolerably up to date. Most laws don't do that, actually. This one does. Okay, so that's why I think it's a bad decision in every way. I think um, it, it misunderstands the text. It misunderstands the history. Um, um, it, it, uh, it, it doesn't really have a good answer to Justice Ginsburg's dissent about updating. Okay, but now you asked, well, what if I were trying to persuade him today? And I think I'd say, well, you're empirically based. You're a real person in the world, just, Chief Justice Roberts. Um, since 2013, look at what's happened. States have taken Shelby County, and many of them have tried to do bad things, um, and here's why. They passed laws that they know are unconstitutional, but by the time courts catch up with them, they've already held the election, and you can't easily undo it. So, so we have seen... I'm not making this up, Mr. Chief Justice, with all due respect. We've seen all sorts of assaults on Voting Rights Act since your opinion, and truthfully, Ruth Bader Ginsburg predicted this, and you said, you know, we're kind of in a post-racial world, you know, uh, Obama is the President of the United States, and it turns out, actually, that that's not quite right. So you're um, a realist, you're empirically based, don't you see that some of the premises that I think under which you operated um, in 2013 have been disproved by, by recent events. Now, it's always a hard thing to, you know, to uh, admit you might have uh, missed something, you might be wrong in so, some ways, but, but that's what the, our great judges do. Um, so in a very polite and respectful way, I would try to make the case that this um, opinion should be reversed not just on purely originalist grounds that it's wrong, um, ab initio, although it is, but in addition, precedent itself says that when subsequent events undercut some of the premises of a judicial opinion, um, the opinion should be revisited. So that's, I think, um, uh, what I said, because I, I know him, I see him, he's not an originalist, neither was Henry Friendly quite, neither was Louis Brandeis quite, um, but he's very much a doctrinalist, a judge's judge who's interested in um, uh, how um, judicial decision-making uh, changes uh, in, in principled and gradual ways over the years. A common law method. Henry Friendly was a great common law jurist. Um, and, but the common law says, oh, you have to be attentive to things that have happened after an opinion came down that undercut some of the premises of the opinion itself. So he might be more open to that kind of argument than just a pure originalist argument. Amar was right in 2005 and Ginsburg was right in her dissent in 2013. Well, also, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, his own logic here in Shelby County, to some degree, 
um, might might be used as justification for him revisiting it because he's his complaint is that um, is that the, the states are put on the preclearance list and then they can't get off. Okay, that, yes. that things are different from what the then in nineteen sixty five or nineteen seventy five, which was the last time that they modified the coverage formula. So mm-hmm. um, now you you made the argument that that he's wrong about that 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 the law does provide for ways to, to get off the list. But nevertheless, that's his argument. Well, if his problem if he's complaining that there's no way to revisit it then one might also say the same thing about his decision that, you know, that it has to be revisited, you know, because he's saying, well, things have changed. But in fact, Chief Justice Roberts, the, the, you know, what we now see is that when we've looked to see if in fact they've changed, once you've lifted these restrictions, we see that it's going back to the way it was. So therefore by your own reasoning, we should reconsider this. You should reconsider this decision. Well, I think that's brilliant. Andy, I keep telling you, you should have gone to law school. Yeah, then maybe I could formulate a good argument. But anyway. <laughs> no, you just did. That's great. <laughs> Wish I had said it and thought of it, but uh, I like it. So, um, so I guess we'll see. Of course, this next case is on Section Two, and this is not a uh, podcast today, totally about the voting rights case. But, um, but uh, I think it'll be interesting when the decision comes down. We can we can look at it on, on a subsequent. Podcast. Yeah, I, I hope we'll do a, a subsequent episode once all the cases are decided. I think we'll have an episode just thinking about all the cases. But today, instead, we're looking at it a different way, like the view, not the play-by-play from the 50-yard line, but the view from the blimp. We're just getting a different perspective on the field, and we're talking about the nine justices. I talked a lot about the chief. The chief justice sets an institutional tone for the court, and I'm in general an admirer of this chief justice. And as you heard, uh, I, the, my biggest reservation is um, his decision in Shelby County. And it's not to say that I agree with him in lots of the other, in all the other cases, but but that was the one that um, um, bothers me the most. And it's the most reminiscent of Rehnquist, truthfully. So um, we started with this most senior ex officio, um, John Roberts, and then the most senior associate justice is Clarence Thomas. Um, and here's what you need to know about Justice Thomas. He didn't go to a fancy, the fanciest of colleges. He went to an outstanding college, Holy Cross, and Yale Law School. But he's an outsider. He doesn't grow up in a fancy cosmopolitan place. Um, he grows up in Pinpoint, Georgia. Um, and he's a cultural outsider um, and uh, a racial outsider, a black man in, in white America. And that... Um, and, and there are important biographical elements, I, I think, that manifest themselves in um, his um, general decision-making um, and approach. And, and, and one of them is he very much likes thinking for himself. He's a more independent thinker. He's very much of a view that... Um, it's wrong for white America to think that all black people have to think the same way. All white people don't think the same way. All Jews don't think the same way. Why should all black people have to think the same way? He, he really fiercely um, uh, believes in independence of thought, and he's tried to exemplify that. Let me take um, what I think is um, uh, his best set of decisions, and then I'll t- tell you about what I like least of all. Um, so he is much more of an originalist, and he looks at the, um, the the Constitution directly, and isn't always bound. Doesn't think that he's bound by a precedent if he thinks it's wrongly decided. Um, 
Um, sometimes you can deviate from what a precedent says, even if you end up saying, oh, but they got the right results, they just didn't use the, the right theory. Um, um, and time and again, Justice Thomas has actually suggested new and fresh ways of thinking about constitutional provisions, and at his best, I think he's been a hugely uh, constructive force on the court, very much in the tradition, wait for it, you might be surprised, of Hugo Black. Okay. Now, Hugo Black uh, was actually a former Klansman, um, believe it or not, um, uh, and, um, and a liberal Democrat, um, and, uh, um, and that's not Clarence Thomas, who is um, a dark-skinned black um, um, who is a conservative Republican. So why would I say they're at all the same? Oh, they're geographic and cultural outsiders. They come from the Southland um, in an intra-profession very much dominated by um, uh, New England Ivy League types. You know, that's what we've been talking about for many of the past episodes. Okay? Um, they know what it's like to be a cultural outsider. Um, and they both very much um, are fundamentalists of a sort. They, they come from a part of the country that's um, actually um, called the Bible Belt, um, and where um, even though Thomas happens to be Catholic, um, there's a strong tradition of, um, of reading scripture um, um, and, and, and reading it directly, sola scriptura. Um, let's look at what the Bible actually says rather than the church teaching. Um, so in some deep sense, constitutionally, they're Protestants in certain ways. They privilege the text over the precedents, um, and they think each person should be able to read the text for himself. That's a very Martin Luther-like idea. Um, and let me just take a couple of examples where Clarence Thomas actually has been... Uh, so here's Hugo Black. Hugo Black says... The Constitution actually was um, originally, the, the Bill of Rights originally applied only against the federal government, but after the Civil War, text was added that incorporates, that applies the Bill of Rights against the states. He says, just read the language. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Now, if you just go up to someone and say, like, what are the, your privileges and immunities as a citizen of the United States? Or do people would say, well, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, free exercise of religion, um, uh, uh, a, um, a right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. They'd say stuff that's in the Bill of Rights. They might say other things too, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Ordinary people would say what we call the Bill of Rights are among the privileges and immunities of the United States, and they'd be right. And that's what the author of the 14th Amendment, the lead sponsor, John Bingham, did say at the time in the House. That's what his counterpart, Jacob Howard, did say in the Senate. And so if you actually take seriously the text of the Constitution and its original um, uh, meaning, you'd say the Bill of Rights should, in general, plus or minus, there might be a little quibbling around the edges, apply against the states. And that was Hugo Black's idea. But when he said that, when he put that forth, that wasn't what the case law said at all. Um, and he said, oh, it says freedom of speech, let's take that seriously, but the cases weren't taking freedom of speech seriously in the 1930s when he joined the court. And he says, oh, it does say the right to vote five times, let's take that seriously, and there should be one person, one vote, but that's not what the Pressons said at the time. He said, oh, it says equal to um, Hugo Black, let's do that, racial equality, but, but when he joins the court in 1930s, Plessy versus Ferguson is on the books and not Brown versus Board of Education. 
Hugo Black, as an outsider, comes in and says, maybe actually these smart-alecky lawyers with their fancy law degrees, maybe they've actually gotten it wrong. I'm going to actually think for myself, look at the text, and see what it says and follow it. And Black was heroic. Um, and he leads the Warren Court to a Warren Court revolution that affirms the rights to vote, one person, one vote, racial equality in Brown versus Board of Education, um, broad protection of free speech and free press um, uh, in cases like New York Times versus Sullivan, and applying the Bill of Rights against the states, what we call incorporation. The Bill of Rights is incorporated by the 14th Amendment against states and localities. That's Hugo Black. Now, how is Clarence Thomas like that, coming again from um, a kind of an uh, outsider region of the country, the, the, the Southland? Hugo Black said, let's take privileges or immunities clause seriously. In fact, the court did incorporate the Bill of Rights against the states, but not using that clause. Um, and, uh, and Clarence Thomas, actually, in, in an important decision, uh, City of Chicago versus McDonald's, said, let's take seriously that clause. Let's look at it. Let's examine it. Maybe we should revive it. Um, when Clarence Thomas joins the court, there's no major Supreme Court precedent affirming the right of um, individuals to have guns in their homes for self-protection. Most people, most scholars say, oh, the Second Amendment is just about state militias or something. And in a case called Prince versus United States, Thomas writes a concurrence saying, you know, um, let's take seriously, let, let, at some point we should study what the Second Amendment was originally designed to be about and maybe also how the 14th Amendment um, may have um, uh, 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 affected the, the meaning of the Second Amendment. Now, um, and the court will eventually do that and eventually take this, look at the Second Amendment and, uh, and say, oh, it actually, there is a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection. And oh, in a later case called City of Chicago versus McDonald, the same case where um, Thomas in a concurrence says, let's talk about the privileges or immunities clause. The court doesn't quite do that, but does say, oh, this right to have a gun in your home for self-protection, that applies against states and localities, against localities like Chicago or a state like New York State. Um, and and uh, the key is, Clarence Thomas said it first, um, uh, that we should take seriously, we should look at the, 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 the vision behind this. And uh, City of Chicago versus McDonald, which is a very important case in my view, and I'm going to come back to that when we talk about Justice Alito, I think it's Justice Alito's best decision, talks especially about the history behind the 14th Amendment, a history in which um, it was widely recognized that black people had a right, especially in the Southland, had to have a right to have gun, a gun in their home for self-protection because you couldn't count on the local sheriff when the Klan came calling. Um, and I don't think it's a total surprise that someone who intuited that early on was Clarence Thomas, who came from Pinpoint, Georgia, and you know, just uh, it just intuits that history. Um, so, at his best, Thomas has said, "Let's let's take another look at privileges and immunities clause. Let's look at the the history and the tradition behind um, uh, arms bearing in America. Let's see what we find. Let's not just be bound by." Um, a few not very well thought out precedents. Let's actually do a deep dive and, and, and look at the, the issue uh, um, uh, as a matter of first principles. And I think in doing all that, he's very much in the tradition of the great Hugo Black. He, um, Thomas did, said, let's rethink how we think about the confrontation clause. Um, it, it actually seems to have um, clear words, and yet we seem to be balancing it away. And 
uh, that's gonna, that generates um, a revolution in uh, confrontation clause jurisprudence called Crawford. Confrontation clause is, of course, the right of criminal defendants to confront their accusers. And Thomas was the first one to really talk about that. More recently, and this is on the conservative side, Justice Thomas has said, oh, I've been reading this guy Amar, and he says the exclusionary rule is kind of made up. Maybe let's, let's think about that. Justice Thomas actually just returned to that issue um, in a, a Fourth Amendment case um, uh, earlier this week, uh, um, or actually maybe it was last week. Um, but, but he's not afraid to look at the Constitution and, and rethink. That's Thomas at his best. And I think uh, for Justice Thomas's worst moment um, is that he was one of the justices in Bush versus Gore, um, which I think was a, um, a big mistake in every way imaginable. Um, uh, we'll put up on the um, website um, some things that I've written about Bush versus Gore so our audience can judge for themselves. Um, but just in a nutshell, um, uh, the Constitution mainly makes Congress the judge of contested presidential elections, not the Supreme Court. Presidents are supposed to pick justices. Justices aren't supposed to pick presidents. And on the, so the court shouldn't have even gotten involved, in my view. And on the merits, um, uh, what the Florida court did was completely permissible. They construed Florida law, and it's their job to construe Florida law. And the Florida legislature itself gave the Florida court the role of construing the meaning of Florida legislation. So on the merits... There was nothing wrong with what happened. Indeed, um, the Florida legislature itself, to repeat, had authorized the Florida court and not the U.S. Supreme Court to interpret the meaning of, of Florida statutes. Um, and in the end, it was a partisan decision um, uh, uh, because um, uh, the Democrat appointees on the court um, were outraged. Um, um, so... Um, the court shouldn't have even heard this. It violated all the Brandeisian principles that we you know, began to talk about. The court shouldn't have even have heard the case. And on the merits, they should have upheld, in effect, the state right to decide state law in state court. That's a Brandeis idea, state rights and state laboratories. And um, they ended up with a hyperpartisan result that has not aged well. And there's only been... So I'm saying, well, why are you picking... And you might say, our audience might say, why are you picking on... Justice Thomas. Okay, there were a bunch of others in, in that majority, um, and Chief Justice Rehnquist was in that majority, by the way. And I'm picking on Thomas, whom I adore personally. Truth be told, I, I really um, love him as a human being, um, and know him well and, and respect him. Um, and, but I'm picking on him in part because he, among all the justices on Bush versus Gore, actually seems um, inclined to. Uh, to cite it with approval um, more recently. Um, and until the last year, um, no justice um, had cited Bush versus Gore basically with approval. Um, and Justice Thomas, um, except possibly Thomas himself, I think, in, in one um, case. But, but, but Thomas has led the charge um, to, um, on the court in the, in the last year to, in effect, rehabilitate Bush versus Gore, and I think that's a big mistake. Okay, so um, now 
Uh, just before we leave, uh, before we leave, Justice Thomas, um, do you identify any uh, specific legal influences on him? Like, who would you say is his mentor or uh, or or model? I'm not the Yale Law School. He went to Yale Law School, and he's a very much um, uh, he, he's very much sort of self-taught in, in Lincolnian in some ways. Very Hugh So. He, he is an autodidact. He reads for himself. So did Lincoln. So did Hugo Black. And um, um, so they're not quite the product of institutions the way uh, Roberts is the product, maybe, um, uh, with all the polish of, of, of Harvard College and Harvard Law School. So if you were uh, writing, you know, opinions, or rather uh, briefs, you know, that were aimed at trying to get Justice Thomas's vote, it's based on what you were saying uh, so far. It sounds like you would lean towards originalist arguments um, in general. Absolutely, um, yes. And any any other uh, tips for our uh, brief writers in the audience? Um, uh, take each of the justices seriously. Um, they each have different views, and you have to count to five, and you can't count anyone out. Um, and especially Thomas, who actually... Um, is the senior associate justice um, and is still a young man and um, has, uh, so I guess here's what I would say. Justice Scalia got a lot of credit um, for certain things that actually Thomas said first. Thomas um, um, was before Scalia talking about um, a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection. And actually I think Scalia's opinion in Heller wasn't so good. Um, I think Alito's in uh, citizen uh, in city of Chicago is better, and, and Thomas was on that issue before either of them. Um, Justice Glee wrote an opinion called Crawford, rethinking how we um, uh, interpret the Confrontation Clause. Thomas saw it first, said it first, and in the post-Crawford cases, consistently had the better way of thinking about a confrontation compared to Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia, I would say, has been was a less principled and consistent and coherent originalist than was uh, than Justice Thomas has been. Justice Thomas actually really cares about originalism. He does a lot of reading on his own. He reads history. I don't think Justice Scalia, in fact, did. So for those folks out there, I would say you have to take Justice Thomas very, very seriously. Indeed, you give you over the last uh, um, generation probably gave a little too much credit to Justice Scalia, and some of you weren't focusing enough on Justice Thomas. Okay, so um, let's move on to our next uh, justice in order of seniority, and that, that I believe would be Justice Breyer. For whom I clerked when he was a judge on the First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston, so cards on the table, I adore him. Um, and I'm going to tell you about... Um, what I think his best opinion is and his least good, and just very briefly, um, his biography. So he's a cosmopolitan. He grows up in the San Francisco Bay Area, as did I. Then he goes um, off to um, uh, uh, Harvard for law school. His undergraduate work was at Stanford. Um, and he clerks for the Supreme Court for Arthur Goldberg and becomes a professor at the Harvard Law School at a young age. He, um, worked in the executive branch of, of government doing antitrust policy. Later on, he's going to work in the legislative um, a branch um, uh, as a general counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee under Ted Kennedy. And, um, and on that committee, um, he's 
going to work very closely with Republicans as well as Democrats, um, and he very much um, uh, believes in nonpartisanship. His best pals at the Harvard Law School, uh, many of them were Republicans, but he's just, uh, he, Breyer tries to avoid being um, narrowly ideological. He's not an originalist. Um, uh, he's not a, um, a person who is just a pure doctrinalist. He's very much a practical, self-described pragmatist, a problem solver of a certain sort. Um, and my own constitutional philosophy is rather different from Justice Breyer's, but on a human level, he was the best boss in the world. Um, no one who knows him well speaks ill of him. He's just a very good and generous person. Um, um, but um, very different sensibility from John Roberts. He's not, you know, there's nothing Rehnquistian about him at all. Very different from Clarence Thomas. He's not an outsider, although ethnically um, Jewish, but he, he's an insider um, and uh, very much a product, basically, of the the establishment, um, which is to some extent, you see, a coastal establishment. And, uh, and by coast, I don't mean pinpoint Georgia, which is technically on the coast. I mean the Northeast um, and, the and, and the Pacific West. You know, when I, when I think of Justice Breyer, I don't know him personally, so I don't have a, a personal reaction to him. Um, but, uh, you know, when I think about him and his jurisprudence, the phrase that comes to mind is, is cost-benefit analysis. Yes, you know? Um, um, and I'm not sure quite how that translates into into legal theory. Um, well, when he was a professor at the Harvard Law School, you see, he wasn't a con law person. He was um, more of a lawyer economist. He was interested in antitrust policy, in which you have to think about costs and benefits. He was interested in um, regulatory um, legislation, and when you have to think about costs and benefits, um, he was involved in the deregulating of the uh, airline industry um, as a Senate uh, staffer. So, um, uh, you know, very much he's a lawyer economist um, in the tradition of Cass Sunstein, for example, who actually took over his uh, administrative law casebook. Um, uh, so, um, uh, and who has written very interesting things about cost-benefit analysis. So, um, um, Breyer's best opinion, however, is not a cost-benefit opinion. It's a strongly originalist uh, opinion in some ways, taking very seriously um, the, the, the vision of the Constitution as a whole and um, its early um, implementation um, in a case involving a technical separation of powers issue about recess appointments. And the decision is called Noel Canning. Um, and, um, and it's an opinion that shows, um, in my view, um, that, uh, that Breyer, at his best, um, was able to attend carefully to um, a text and an early uh, history. And his, his worst, worst moment? Okay, so you're holding my feet to the fire, so I'm going to I'm going to tell you um, I'm going to read um, a couple of pages from uh, an article that I wrote in the Harvard Law Review, um, and uh, this these are some pages about Breyer's abortion jurisprudence. Now, personally, I'm pro-choice. Um, I trust 
women. Uh, abortion is a very complicated, raises, um, can raise very, very complicated moral and medical issues, and I tend to trust women um, to make um, morally responsible choices. But that's different from what the Constitution necessarily says. Um, and I think Justice Breyer's abortion case law um, has been problematic, and I've said so in print. And here's what I want to say before I read you the passages from the Harvard Law Review. I clerked for Justice Breyer. You're going to hear me be very critical of, of a Breyer opinion, and Justice Breyer has never held it against me. Um, and, and he, he um, uh, as a judge, you know, when I was his law clerk, you know, was always open to, to hearing criticisms. It's, it's, he's the exact opposite in that way of, let's say, John Adams, who was very thin-skinned and didn't want to hear criticism. So even though I'm criticizing Stephen Breyer um, uh, in this passage, um, it's, um, it's actually interesting because not very many academics feel that free to be so candid in criticizing someone for whom they clerked. And to the extent that I am very candid in this passage and very critical. I think it speaks well of Stephen Breyer in every way, as a human and as a judge, that he wouldn't try to shut down uh, clerks, former clerks who might respectfully disagree. And there are even moments when you might say, Akil, you're not so respectful, um, and you might be right. So I'm going to read you two pages. Abortion is, and this is from a piece in the Harvard Law Review um, from uh, November 2000, um, right before uh, Bush versus Gore comes down. Abortion is perhaps America's most agonizing legal and moral issue. It's divided the country, and last term it divided the court deeply and down the middle. In Stenberg versus Carhartt, Five justices voted to overturn Nebraska's ban on partial birth abortions. Four dissenters sharply disagreed. Eight justices wrote, more than in any case last term or indeed in the last decade. So I'm picking an important case here. Some of the opinions contain passages that are gut-wrenching in their graphic descriptions of late-term abortions. Nothing that anyone could say about abortion law on the court, in the Harvard Law Review, or anywhere else, could soothe all sides or completely heal the nation's bleeding wounds. But I submit that doctrine's discourse, as exemplified by the opinions of the justices in the majority, is insensitive and obtuse. More partisan, more cold, less conciliatory, and less wise than the, do than the document itself. Whether couched in the bland language of Justice Breyer's opinion for the court, or the more confrontational prose of some of the concurring justices, the basic approach of the majority is that the court has spoken and all must obey. Justice Breyer begins, however, on a far more promising note, cautioning that, quote, constitutional law must govern a society whose different members sincerely hold directly opposing views, unquote. So far, so good. We need a focal point, a common ground, something that respects the valid concerns of both those who care about women's equality and those who care about unborn human life. And that focal point, says Justice Breyer, is doctrine. That's his judicial case law precedent. Quote, this court, in the course of a generation, 
has determined and then redetermined that the Constitution offers basic protection to the woman's right to choose. Roe v. Wade, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. We shall not revisit these legal principles. Rather, we apply them to the circumstances of this case. Unquote. Now back to my narrative. There are several problems here. First, exactly where and how does, quote, the Constitution, unquote, offer this basic protection? In other words, where is the first link in the chain of proper constitutional argument connecting Roe's rules to something actually in the document? To properly apply legal principles to new facts, we need to know the reasons underlying the principles. In the year 2000, it is hardly a state secret that Roe's exposition was not particularly persuasive, even to many who applauded its results. Casey built on Roe without ever explaining why Roe was right. Now Stenberg builds on Casey and Roe, and critics may justly feel this is a shell game with no P. If all sides are being invited to come together in good faith, it's hard to ask them to cohere around Roe simply because, quote, this court, unquote, keeps encanting it without justifying it constitutionally. We shall not revisit these legal principles. Shut up, he explained, because I said so. Second, even if Roe's weakness were not so obvious or important, what Roe said was not particularly wise or sensitive. The case contained very little about women's equality, more about the rights of doctors, and rather a lot about privacy. But to talk about privacy is to beg the question of the moral status of the fetus. How can all be asked to come together around a discourse that fails to acknowledge the basic moral insight of one side, that the fetus is a moral entity? Even if the moral nothingness of the fetus were obvious to most right-thinking folk when the fetus is a mere near microscopic clump of cells, the issue in Stenberg is very different. Late second trimester abortions of recognizable humans with hands, organs, dimensions, senses, brains. When you prick them, they bleed. Thus, Rose privacy talk is not a promising way to find common ground. What about women's equality? Breyer's opinion contains exactly one mention of equality in this opening paragraph. Quote, millions of Americans fear that a law that forbids abortion would condemn many American women to lives that lack dignity, depriving them of equal liberty, and leading those with least resources to undergo illegal abortions with the attendant risks of death and suffering. Unquote. On the facts of Roe, in which all abortions were banned by an old law for which no woman voted, the claims of women's equality were indeed forceful especially when we understand how law has often used women's biology to limit women's prospects and to channel them into circumscribed lives. But the law in Stenberg was quite different. It had been recently, recently adopted in Nebraska and in 29 other states in a process that involved women as full political equals. In Nebraska itself, the bill passed the state legislature by an overwhelming mar margin among both male and female legislators. The law did not limit early abortions in any way. Women wanting to end an unwanted pregnancy early on had complete freedom to do so. Thus, the law did not completely conscript women's bodies or channel them into narrowly circumscribed lives. 
As for uh, uh, late-term abortions, much more developed and recognizably human fetuses, the law, if narrowly construed, construed, outlawed only a single procedure, leaving other methods of abortion unaffected. Moreover, the American Medical Association has proclaimed that there are no situations in which the banned procedure is the only safe and effective option. Safe alternatives are always available. The majority counters, this is Justice Breyer, that although the alternatives are safe, it's possible to imagine situations where the banned procedure might, perhaps, be ever so slightly safer. But where does con the Constitution say that the government may never oblige citizens to incur some very small risks? Now, so now we're back to cost-benefit analysis. If the document does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics, where does it enact Stephen Breyer's risk regulation manual? Would such a rigid manual constitutionalize so that um, uh, no legislature um, could ever properly modify it be truly wise, given that there's more to life than maximizing safety? Other values, such as minimizing cruelty and barbarism, are also important. If it could be proved that vivisecting all murderers could make crime victims marginally safer, would this gruesome and dehumanizing capital punishment be mandatory? Of course, when only women are being asked to bear serious risks without strong justification, equality principles should come into play. But once again, isn't it important on an equality argument that many women across the country have supported this ban on one particularly cruel form of abortion? The majority tries to sidestep the cruelty question. Casey said nothing about cruelty, so the court will assume it away. So, so that's my critique. I don't think he did a great job in that opinion. And I'm reading what I said at great length so that our audience doesn't think that, you know, this is just designed to make my friends look best of all. I adore Stephen Breyer personally. I respect hugely the great body of his work. If by chance he steps down, we're going to have a whole special episode on Briar, and I'm going to tell you all my great my Briar stories about what a great man he is. But if I'm going to criticize um, John Roberts um, for um, uh, uh, Shelby County and Clarence Thomas for Bush versus Gore, I'm going to have to you know tell you. Um, this opinion, I thought, was a bad opinion because it built on Roe versus Wade, which was a not impressive opinion. My brother clerked for Harry Blackman, who wrote Roe versus Wade, but Roe versus Wade is not an impressive opinion. And if you're going to defend abortion rights today, at some point, you're going to have to move past Roe versus Wade and precedent and talk about what the Constitution really does say and doesn't say and talk more about women's equality and then confront the hard argument on the other side. Well, what happens when lots of women themselves vote for a particular abortion law of a certain sort? How do we think about that there? I think there might be answers to that, but a good opinion would have to actually um, uh, uh, gr grab uh, those issues by the horns. Well, no one can say you're avoiding the... Uh the third rail here. Um, <laughs> I went there. Yes. And, I, and, and, and Justice Breyer, if you, you were listening or anyone else in your family, you, you know I love you and always have. And, and I just wouldn't want anyone to think otherwise. But, and by the way, I'm just reading you what I wrote 20 years ago. And every year he sends me the nicest holiday card and he sends me notes from time to time. And when I see him, you know, he's always oh so generous. And he knows that I wrote that. That, that appeared in a very prominent place in the Harvard Law Review, actually in a thing called the Forward to the Harvard Law Review, which is the, the 
most iconic um, uh, uh, sort of um, spot for any piece of scholarship. You know, it, it's like um, um, someone doing this halftime Super Bowl um, uh, event or something. So, so he knows that I said that, and and but he knows it wasn't personal. That you know, my job as a scholar is to uh, uh, critique the opinions um, uh, as honestly as I can. So we've gone through three of the nine justices, and uh, as as we uh, anticipated, uh, uh, that that took a while, and uh, there's a lot more to say, um, and I think we've whetted our audience's appetite. So uh, next time we'll pick up with uh, uh, Justice Alito, who'll be next, and uh, and on from there. And actually, by then the the term will be over, uh, we believe, and uh, so it'll be interesting to look back at the three justices we did cover and see if there's any, anything that they do between now and then that reflects back on some of the things we've said. And if in particular there were an announcement of uh, a retirement, it, it would be most likely if there were such an announcement, it would be Justice Breyer will of course need to do a special episode, a tribute episode, all about Justice Breyer, and then I'm going to tell you, you know, I'll have a lot more time to tell you all the, the amazing things about Justice Breyer, because today, just to prove my, you know, my bona fides here, that I'm, that I'm a straight shooter, <laughs> I did spend a lot of time talking about uh, one of the opinions of Justice Breyer that I like the least. Well, I have to say that, you know, look, you wouldn't have done it because you value his, his, his friendship and so forth. I think that as much as you are an academic, you are... Uh, you know, in some sense, uh, neutral. Um, you uh, still probably wouldn't have done it if you didn't have confidence in the character of the man that he uh, he can take it. Um, I so respect him and, and love him as a human being. He was a great mentor. Uh, let me so let me close on this. So so I told you, John Roberts actually had, and as it were, was the product of a mixed marriage. He, he clerked for a friendly who was heroic and a Rehnquist, who I think in certain ways was a bad influence. Um, Rehnquist was more partisan and was, has not been, was not good on race and not good on Reconstruction. Um, and and uh, so I, what I'm saying is choose your mentors very carefully. I chose, when I graduated from law school, Stephen Breyer as my mentor. I chose to spend a year, you know, at his elbow. Um, he was Yoda to my Luke Skywalker. Um, you know, he, he was Master Yoda, and 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 Yoda is you know very wise um, and and benign, and so was Stephen Breyer. And, and to the extent I've turned out okay, you know, give credit to my parents, my teachers, and yes, Stephen Breyer. Taught you well, he did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, until next time. <laughs> <laughs>